One of my favorite technical topics has come to be schema design, which it's not typically something you think about as being exciting. But I've learned with a little bit of experience that if you get the schema right, your algorithms will be easy. You get the schema wrong, your algorithms will have to be hard. And so you might as well spend a little bit of time uh, thinking about the schema and your use cases before uh, getting into the code. And one of my favorite examples of this is a post that I put on Hacker News because I found out about it uh, not so long ago, about three months ago. And it's a post from 2012. I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I'll read it out to you. This is how Steve Huffman talks about Reddit's approach to data storage in that Reddit only has two tables. Um, so this is one of the most popular websites on the internet, and they store everything in two database tables. Um, they keep a thing table and a data table. Everything in Reddit is a thing. Users, links, comments, subreddits, awards. Things keep common attributes like up and down votes, a type, and a creation date. And then the data table has three columns, a thing ID, a key, and value. There's a row for every attribute. There's a row for title, URL, author, spam votes, etc. When they add new features, they don't have to worry about database, schema migrations, upgrades, etc. Um, so it's essentially the start of NoSQL as a database layer within SQL. <laughs> and this is in 2012, so MongoDB is just about to become a thing. Um, but uh, there's another name for it. In fact, in the Hacker News post that I'm going to link, there are a couple other names. Uh, there's, it's called the Tau model by some people. It's called the Star Schema by the data warehousing folks. And the Entity Relationship model actually has a Wikipedia entry that uh, is interesting. But they all more or less point to some form of denormalized concept where it makes it easy to add, but then you uh, make the querying a lot harder. Um, and it's always this trade-off, right? Um, make reads easy or make writes difficult. And uh, I was surprised to find that Amazon essentially had the same thing. So uh, the discussion that we're going to have today is a two-part discussion. Uh, the first part is about a two-table setup that Amazon had for its catalog. And then the second part we'll discuss at the end. So one of the last things that I did when I was at Amazon was I changed the fundamental data structure, both in the code and in the database. As you can imagine, the initial data structure that we used in the code and in the database was very book centric. So there was a spot for a title, it had a certain length. Uh, that was pretty easily changeable, but there was a title in the database. There wasn't space for multiple titles. There was a uh, space for an author and then later multiple authors and eventually you know we added things like you know how how much did it weigh or how many pages did it have but it was all very book centric so if you were like thinking like okay we're going to sell cds we're going to need probably track listings or something in there um we're going to sell maybe clothing someday you're going to need to have color and size and who knows right yeah, and for the for the listener like you just mentioned weight but i'm pretty sure dimensions are in there as well uh, and the reason, obviously, is so that way the system knows what size box does this thing have to go in, or how heavy is it might need a different type of box or a different type of shipping. You know, so that all that type of stuff was being thought about. How do we get that stored in in the catalog? So um, the the initial design of the database was a very very simple database. It wasn't like a relational database that you might be thinking of that lets you search by any number of fields. Um, it was a key value database. The key was the ISBN later ASIN. 
And the value is just a series of tab separated, new line, terminated, this value. So right. um, if you wanted to put a new type of field in there, you both had to change the code to know what to do with it. But you also had to change the database so that it would be in the correct location in there because it was expecting these things to be boom, 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 all in a yeah. row. And I wanted to make it so that there was some more flexibility. And I looked at a variety of um, cataloging schemes, including uh, the Library of Congress's MARC records. And I really liked their idea of instead of just having individual fields, boom, 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 pairs of fields where the first part of the pair was a code to tell you what type of field to ex expect, and then the value that was there. And that was the basis for a redesign that let the BiblioRecords store kind of anything and add more with less dependency on a brand new database being rolled out simultaneously with the new code. It, that's right. what let you basically roll them out without synchronizing that, which would make operationally rolling out a new catalog much less fraught. So we would basically see that code and it would probably check a separate database or a separate, ta separate table, which have a table of all the codes and what to expect. And that way you could just add codes if you want over time as you, as you discover they're needed. And then the main, uh, I may be using terms wrong here, but that main database, or that could just grow and grow and grow with codes and, and respective yeah. values. It sort of uh, it didn't need to be rebuilt every time or redesigned. Is that kind yep. of a basic understanding? Yep. Yeah. Now, obviously, if you didn't have any logic in the code base to cope with a particular type of field, right, you had to add that logic for each type of field. But right. this would at least mean that the routines that read in the database didn't have to be changed as often and would not break unpredictably if you rolled out a database with fields that it didn't know about. It could just ignore them in a clean fashion. Got it. Um and so was that that did that problem surface just because you were frustrated with new requests that were coming in for things to put in the catalog or was that something that you just foresaw was going to be a problem based on thinking about the catalog all day every day you know for <laughs> for a couple of years the, the primary motivation was new products yes however yeah. this is also essentially a refactoring in software engineering practices kind of project Right, so if you like have a system that every single time you want to make the least little change, you have to change two really big things and update them simultaneously. Yeah, that's scary and bad, and there's a lot of potential for yeah. bad things to happen. And and so you really want to replace every time you're doing something like that. You want to replace it with something that lets you separate those hazards, yeah. and that lets you um, you know test them independently. That lets things like if you get into an unpredictable state as to which one knows about which, that they still behave well. Yeah, perfect. Well, that, it does help. So, so then when we the the next big the next big catalog, I'll call it development. You can better title it is is title authority. Can you explain what why title authority was like was needed? Did you and uh, maybe describe what it is first, and then because I have a lot of questions about title authority. Like when I went back to Amazon in 2012, we were still referring to title authority. It was in a different context, so I don't know if they still use it for the product catalog anymore. But um, it might not be a term that a lot of other people know about. Uh, I, so 
I like that was one of the last things I did, and I honestly have no idea if they're still using it or if they devised something different. But I can tell you what I designed. What happened with it may have used what I designed. Um, I you know you could probably ask Tim Cohn. He would probably know. Um, he was there for a long time after I left, so he would know whether that got used and what it got used for. Um, okay. Title authority comes again from the Library of Congress. Uh, Basically, the Library of Congress is a lot of people. So librarians are catalogers. That's what they do. And um, they don't like it if you have, like, um, you know, John Smith and Jonathan Smith. And you're not sure if John and Jonathan are the same guy or different guys. They would kind of like to know, well, which one is it? And we want to sort of have all of this person's variant representations of their name points to the definitive representation of their name. So that's kind of the Library of Congress thought process on it. I actually thought about title authority in a slightly different way. I was not as concerned with um, the definitive representation of the name, but I was very concerned with ensuring that the catalog could capture and help the customer with relationships between products. So for example, if you want to read all of the Harry Potter books, you would right. like them to somehow be connected to each other. And one way that you can represent that is by representing each Harry Potter book as being part of a series. A series. Yeah. And and so so anything that lets you like say, okay, um, Jane Ann Krentz is the same person as Amanda Quick, right? So to use an author who writes under multiple pseudonyms. So you'd right. like to be able to help the reader find the well, same I, I person love, writing it or anything. Yeah, I you know, love this. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry, keep going. I just like, I think this is really fascinating. It's not something you really think about. I mean, it's easy to think about Moby Dick is a book and there's a hardcover and a paperback and an audio book. And, and those are, what do we call that? It's like same product, same work sort of thing. Yeah. And, and just to put this in context, you all had to create all of this. Like this didn't exist anywhere in a, in a or did it exist so we, at all in some of these these catalogs we were getting? So um, at least one of the distributor catalogs had a related ISBN field, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think, I don't know if we ever displayed that information, and I'm not sure how much we ever used it. I may, I'll probably wake up in the middle of the night going like, oh, no, I remember that. Yeah, right. but I don't remember right now. So um, for, but... So in terms of like even series information um, and, and pseudonym information absolutely was not present yeah. anywhere. That was just kind of stuff that honestly sometimes the authors would just assume you didn't figure that out. So. Well, I, the, one of the other examples you gave me was, uh, I may mispronounce it, but like Ilona or Ilana Ilana Andrews. Andrews. And Andrews, you said, yep. you're like, oh, no. That's Dave. a husband and wife writing team. Yeah. It's a husband and wife writing team under, writing under a, a different name. And you all had to figure that out because somebody might search on the husband's name or the wife's name. Well, so that's not a particular problem there. But I always feel like um, if you can provide a mechanism for for helping. So, look, a lot of readers of books, they really want more by the same. Yeah. Whatever. And so if they've read everything by one author, but you can show them that, oh, actually, this person is writing under this other name, or they write by themselves here, but they write as part of a writing team there, or they write by themselves now, but they used to write as part of a, a fictional name that multiple people wrote yeah. under, like Carolyn Keene. 
So, so anything you can do like that to help the dedicated reader customer find more of what they want. You know, this was before we got really awesome with recommendations. So, you know, this yeah, is but kind I'm of just, like that. The reason this is uh, really interesting is you can just see how much you and your like, you know, probably millions of people hours working on these problems <laughs> and getting these associations and getting the ASINs, you know, and getting the other tools you're, you know, you're, we were just talking about, like just getting this all to work is what makes sort of shopping and browsing and exploring and discovering. It, it wouldn't work if somebody wasn't sitting there getting all those details and those relationships right. Like the recommendation engine wouldn't work as well if it didn't have all this information figured out in some way. Well, so I don't, I don't know. The, I don't know. The recommendation engine works in a very different way, and so yeah. I don't. But but what I guess I would say is that um, the unsung heroes here are. It's not me. I was only there for a very brief period of time, right? I, I put some hours into this. I thought hard about it. I talked to people about it, but it was it was pretty compressed, right? What I did is I created a framework for capturing these relationships that was extensible. Well, but I'm actually, what, by the way. What then had to happen is is so many people had to populate that information. And and the value to Amazon of that information being captured and then available to the customer is phenomenal. Yeah, and I was actually saying, I was actually referring to the entire catalog organization, yep. like this massive team that <laughs> there's people in every country, on every, you know, <laughs> in every store, like, and it's not something you normally think about. I think most people think about customer service and the people in the warehouse and the engineers, but like there's the, the amount of detail that went into getting the catalog right. And all I meant about personalization, by the way, is just if a person searches for the partner, we probably have 119 ASINs for the actually the partner, you know, like all the different variations, <laughs> but they know which like main one to put up there somehow. And I, again, without getting into it, it's it it just shows how complicated this stuff gets as you start, you know, you start thinking about the problem of displaying a single piece of work, you know, and then you're like, well, do they want the audiobook? Do they want the album? Do they want the, the hardcover, paperback? Like it, it's really complicated. So of course, that's again, a clip from uh, my new favorite podcast, Event Like an Owner, which goes through the oral history of Amazon from people who were early employees. And that was the setup of the ASIN, the Amazon Standard Identification Number. Uh, I just really love this topic because it goes into categorization, which seems like a boring librarian type topic. Uh, but it gives you structured data, which you can build recommendations and personalization and uh, all that fun stuff that you kind of take for granted uh, when you experience Amazon. There's a lot under the hood.